What we're going to talk about tonight is a singular Jesus in a pluralistic culture. You may have noticed in your perambulations through the Gospels that Jesus doesn't run around saying, Hi, I'm God. You may have noticed this. There's a reason the word God had a very specific meaning in early Judaism. It meant Yahweh. And Jesus wasn't and isn't Yahweh. Put another way, he's not the Heavenly Father. He's someone other than the Heavenly Father. So when Jesus reveals himself, he reveals himself in ways in an early Jewish context that would make sense in that first century Jewish context, in ways people could understand, but also in ways that would sort of probe the limits of what they might be able to understand and, and believe, to tease their minds into active thought. When we think about Jesus and his self-revelation, there are a lot of dimensions to this, and we're only going to be able to focus on some tonight. So let's start. First of all, there are a few things that all New Testament scholars agree on when it comes to historical Jesus. And one of those things is that Jesus used two key phrases in his public discourse. One he used as a self-descriptor, son of man, over and over and over again. The other he used to describe his mission, kingdom of God, son of man, kingdom of God. Now, what is seldom asked about those two phrases is, might there be an Old Testament text somewhere back there where we find both of these phrases or concepts together? Survey says, answer is yes. There's only one text in the Old Testament where both of these ideas coalesce and coexist. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Here's what Daniel 7, 13 and 14 say. This is a translation from the Aramaic. In my vision, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, bar inashach, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days, the really old dude, and was led into his presence. And he, the one like a son of man, was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations, the peoples of every language, worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Now, this is a really remarkable passage. It's going to need some unpacking, and we're going to need to compare it to another messianic promise or prophecy in 2 Samuel. That text in Daniel 7, 13, and 14 should be compared to verses later in the same chapter. Later in the same chapter, we have Daniel 7, 25 through 27, where we are told that this everlasting kingdom, this everlasting reign, this everlasting dominion or realm is handed over to God's people, to the saints. And it is taken away from the beastly rulers and empires of this world who had ruled it before. Now, 
you need to know something about the context to understand Daniel 7. I like to say a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. In Daniel, what has come before Daniel 7 is four gnarly beastly empires, each of which have a beastly ruler as its head. Now, this is deliberate. We have four inhumane empires, four beastly empires, followed by a humane one who is led by whom? A son of man. You see the contrast? The human one as opposed to the beastly ones. A, a deliberate contrast in Daniel 7. So we have this pattern of inhumane empires, four of them, followed by, finally, once and for all, a human and humane one. That's the big picture. But to further understand the significance of Daniel 7, 13 and 14, we need to contrast it with 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, a promise <laughs> that God made to David himself. This is what God promised David. When your days are over, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. And I will establish his kingdom and his son's kingdom and his son's kingdom, etc., etc., etc. Now, do you see the difference between these two? One talks about a succession of rulers who, by the way, are not to be worshipped. The other talks about a ruler who will rule and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Get the picture? How long is he going to rule? Olam, wa olam, wa olam, wa olam. Forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You get the picture? Okay. Davidic kingdom, one ruler, he dies, his son, Solomon. He dies, you get it. We got a succession of royal rulers and they are merely human, which is why they die. But then you have this one like a son of man who he himself personally expects no successors. He is the end of the line. Have you ever noticed how in the Gospels Jesus doesn't say, well, when my successor succeeds me after I die? No, Jesus doesn't ever say anything like that. He is the end of the line. He is the climax of the covenant. He is full stop the end of the story. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, when the author of the play walks out on the stage, the play is over. You get the picture? The story ends with the Son of Man. And what are we told about this Son of Man? Well, these two texts are, are dramatically different. They're both texts that were read messianically, but the one that Jesus interprets himself out of is the Son of Man text. In fact, when somebody asks him about the son of David, you know what Jesus says? He said, you know what it says in the Psalms? 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110, 1, 2. Okay? Did Jesus ask this wonderful little brain teasing question of those who thought they already knew all the answers? If that messianic figure you're talking about is just a son of David, why does David, inspired by the Spirit in the Psalm, call him David's Lord? Uh huh. <laughs> Nobody raises their hand and says, I know. You see, what Jesus is saying is that considering him to be the son of David is true but insufficient. He's not just the son of David. He's David's Lord. And the day is coming when his kingdom will be established on earth forever and he will be worshiped. Now let that sink in for a minute. Jews worship how many gods? Uno. Ein. On. One. Are you with me now? You get the picture? Alpha, as they would say in Greek. One. Only one. And yet Daniel 7 says that the Son of Man will be worshipped by how many nations? All of them, even America. Woohoo! <laughs> and every language, and every tongue. This day is coming. And it will be as Son of Man that He will be worshiped. Ergo, dear friends, Son of Man is an important key to understanding who this man is. Now, sometimes in church history, we have gotten um, confused. Some church fathers thought, okay, Son of Man refers to his humanity, Son of God to his divinity. Here I'm going to tell you that in early Judaism, it would have been quite the other way around. The phrase Son of God in a Jewish context simply meant the king. The king was viewed as God's special son. That's what Psalm 2 is about. It's a coronation ode for David. On this day, says God to David, you have become my beloved son. You're the king. It's good to be the king. You see, Jesus doesn't want to be confined into a Davidic pigeonhole. It's true, he's son of David but he's much more than son of David. And the term or title he chooses to fill with the content of that more is actually son of man. Now, think again about Daniel 7 and what it actually said. It says that the figure in question comes down on the clouds from heaven. Where was final judgment supposed to take place according to the Old Testament prophets? In heaven or on earth? Survey says, Amos says, the day of judgment's going to be on earth. Hosea says, the day of judgment's going to be, wait for it, on earth. 
Zephaniah says, on earth. Zechariah says, on earth. Are you getting, there, there's a pattern here. Where is final judgment going to happen? Not somewhere out there. Or at death. Final judgment doesn't happen at death. It happens at, wait for it, the final judgment. When Jesus returns to earth to judge the world. That's when it's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Now, what we are told in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is that this one like a son of man comes on the clouds and he meets the Ancient of Days, the really old dude, and the Ancient of Days bequeaths to him judgment and authority and power and kingdom to rule forever and to be worshipped. What does Jesus himself say at the end of the Gospel of Matthew after he's risen from the dead? What does he say to the disciples in Galilee? How much authority has been given to him? All authority has been given to me. Therefore, y'all go make disciples. Jesus was a good southern boy. <laughs> you all, all y'all, go make disciples. Daniel 7 says that the day is coming that he's going to come and judge the earth. Now, one of the places this comes up in the gospel is Mark 14, 62. Picture the scene. Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest, thinks they're judging Jesus. They think they're judging Jesus. Wrong. Caiaphas says, this trial is going on too long. We need to force the issue. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Yay or nay? Jesus says, yes, but the very next words out of his mouth are this. But you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds to a theater near you, judging you. You think you're judging me? You want a piece of me? Guess what? I'll be back. And I'll be judging you. Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry, identifies himself as the Son of Man as Daniel, in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And here is where I tell you that this is the one title applied to Jesus that stresses both his humanity and his divinity. Bet you didn't know that before now. This is the one title that not only elevates his humanity, but also his divinity. For only God should be worshipped according to the Bible. And yet this man is worshipped. Now, even on a minimalist approach to the evidence about the historical Jesus, while we do not much find Jesus calling himself son of David, nor does Jesus even once cite 2 Samuel 7 of himself, scholars are quite clear about Jesus referring to himself as the son of man and of his preaching about an everlasting kingdom, which he is inaugurating. Now here's the question. You can ask this to even the most skeptical of scholars, say Bart Ehrman, a.k.a. Voldemort, 
okay? <coughs> the question to be asked is, what kind of person thinks he can personally reign forever? Not him and his offspring, but just him. Are you getting the picture now? What kind of person thinks he can reign forever? I think we're getting a parade of every fire truck in the whole city of Oakland. This is a hot topic. I know why they're here. Yeah. What kind of person thinks he can personally reign forever? My answer to that would be a divine person. Or again, what sort of person thinks he can bring the eschatological saving reign of God upon the earth? Let's ask it a different way. What kind of person could be tempted to turn stones into bread by the devil? Now, I've known some people who could turn bread into stones. <laughs> You probably have too. You may remember high school cafeteria. <laughs> However, what kind of person can be tempted to turn stones into bread or tempted to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and not have a really nasty fall? Me, if I throw myself off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, I'm going to just feel a heavy bit of gravity. What kind of person could be offered this offer? I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse, Jesus. <laughs> you see this world, all these kingdoms, they can all be yours if you just, for a moment, worship me. Now, you know what's ironic about that? What's ironic about that, friends, is that in fact, he was going to rule all these kingdoms. <coughs> and he didn't have to wish, worship the devil to get there. He just had to be the son of man. You see, what's going on in those temptation scenes is Jesus is being tempted to push his God button and obliterate his humanity, and he refuses to do it. See, Jesus had a God button. You and me, not so much. <laughs> right? The Son of Man is more than just merely mortal. He's 100% human, but he's also 100% divine. Now, interestingly, the title Son of Man is not all that much used in early Jewish literature outside of the Gospels. It's not part of Jewish messianic speculation very much. Yes, you see a little bit of it in 1st Enoch. Yes, there's a little bit of it in 4th Ezra, but it hardly appears in early Jewish literature in general, except in the Gospels. And furthermore, outside of the Gospels and one place in Acts, how many times, for example, in Paul's 13 letters is Jesus called the Son of Man? Survey says, zero. This is not a title that the early church latched onto when it became an increasingly Gentile institution. 
It's not a title that we find early Judaism being real fond of. But about every five minutes, Jesus called himself the Son of Man. There's something important, significant, singular about this title when it's applied to Jesus. In short, Jesus' prevalent use of the concepts Son of Man and Kingdom of God convey an image of an exalted person. I mean, after all, what kind of person can indeed bring in the kingdom of God? We can tell people about it, but we are so not bringing it. Who can bring in the divine saving reign of God? Only a savior can do that. Nobody else. So let's focus on these claims of Jesus, if we can, for the remainder of our time and ask, why are they so problematic in our culture? Why is the claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, seem to be so obnoxious in our culture? Well, here's the thing. Pluralistic cultures assume multiple options about all their choices. They assume that religion should be a smorgasbord like everything else. Pluralistic cultures assume, for example, there should always be multiple options. Don't tell me that it's only Brussels sprouts that's the only vegetable for supper. I so don't want to hear it. In America, it's different strokes for different folks, right? <clears throat> The question, is Jesus the only way of salvation, comes into question very naturally in a pluralistic culture. How absurd. One way, no other savior. You know you are a bunch of arrogant so-and-sos. How could you possibly believe that? I mean, what about all those people that have never heard about Jesus? Oh my gosh. See, we need to frame the issue properly for a pluralistic culture. I am not claiming, nor did Jesus claim, that there was no value or worth in other cultures and other religions. In fact, of course, Jesus thought there was an awful lot of value in Old Testament religion. Few would dispute that there is wisdom or even some truth to be found in other religious spheres. I'm not arguing that. We don't have to argue that. The issue is this. How then shall a human being be saved? The issue is not could we find some wisdom somewhere else or even some truth somewhere else. All truth is God's truth whether it's in the Bible or it's elsewhere. Can I get an amen? amen? Okay, that's not the issue. The issue is not merely truth decay in our culture. We got plenty of truth decay in our culture. The issue is how do lost human beings get found? How do people in bondage get liberated? How do people in 
all kinds of addictive behaviors loose the shackles of their slavery and become free again. The issue is, how then shall we be saved and transformed? Notice, I didn't say, how then shall we be wise? You know, I have spent a lot of time in the Middle East. I've met a lot of really smart Muslims. They ask really good questions. I get good questions a lot of different places. I was once teaching a Sunday school class in uh, Durham, England. It was near Christmas time, and a little six-year-old girl came up to me, very thoughtful, later became a professor of economics in London. She asked me this question. We were talking about the Christmas story. She said, let me see if I've got it. If God is Jesus' father and Mary is Jesus' mother, are God and Mary married? And if not, wheels turning, wheels turning, is Jesus illegitimate? <laughs> hey, don't laugh. That's a pretty darn good little question for a six-year-old. Are you kidding? I mean, I've had adults that were as dumb as a bag of hammers that couldn't ask that question. That was a good question. She wanted to know where Jesus came from and how we should view him and his relationship to his mother and his heavenly father. The question is not how shall we be wise or how shall we be spiritual, the buzzword of our culture. I love J.P. Moreland, but there was something he said tonight that I absolutely don't agree with. I think that the alternative to the sacred in our culture is not the secular. You see, human beings are inherently religious. They are created in the image of God. The only alternative to bad, good religion in America is bad religion. It's not no religion. Even the atheists have a religion. Have you noticed how they profess their faith? I swear there is no God. How do you know that? I swear there is no God. No, how do you know that? Well, there couldn't be a God of X, Y, Z, A, B, and C. How do you know that? Well, don't. Just deep in the cockles of my heart, I just sense it's got to be true. I have faith that there is no God. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Mr. Dawkins. Okay. I don't agree with the theory that our culture and the main thing we're fighting in our culture is a secular worldview. I don't think that's the main thing we're fighting. What we're mainly fighting is false religion of all different kinds. And as soon as you swap one fly, 10 more crop up. You see, the alternative to being Christian is not being nothing, it's being some kind of spiritual. It's kind of chicken soup for the soul. Because you know why? We're all created in the image of God. You can't get away from the inherent religiosity of humankind. Human beings are the only creatures on the planet that have burial rituals. Have you ever wondered why? All the way back to the beginning of humankind? I'll tell you why. Because we're inherently religious creatures. That's why. Life and death upon one tether and running beautiful together. Human beings configure their story 
always, religiously, one way or another. It's either good religion or bad religion. No, on the question of salvation, that's where the New Testament draws the line. It says this, Jesus is the only way of salvation. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You probably know that one. How about this one? Acts 4, 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to human beings by which they may be saved. But you may well say, okay, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Um, why? It's all right to ask why. You don't have to have a frontal lobotomy to be a Christian. You do not have to check your brain at the door. You don't have to take my grandmother's advice that she gave me before I went off to seminary. She said, don't go up there and lose your faith when you go to seminary. She was a good Southern Baptist. Had this strong anti-intellectual strain, you know. Um, her other saying I liked better, don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. <laughs> that dog will hunt. I like that one. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given for human beings to be saved by. But even if that's so, why? I mean, don't you want to know? Why is it so? The answer is Jesus is unique. He is singular. He's the only one who meets the requirements for being the savior of the world. Nobody else in all of human history has ever met the requirements necessary to be the savior of the world except Jesus. He's both fully human and he's fully divine. It takes a God-man to reconcile God to human beings and human beings to God. How many God-men have walked the earth? Survey says one. And here's what you need to know about that. If God wants to do it that way, who are we to say, no, you can't do it that way. It's unfair. It's just not right. We need multiple options, you know, please. Couldn't we have five choices of Messiah now? <laughs> you see, that is the way a pluralistic cultured person thinks. But suppose there was only one necessary and sufficient means of salvation. Suppose only one person could get the job done. Now, I'm... <laughs> old enough to remember back at the dawn of time when the earth was still cooling, the first heart transplant. Who did the first heart transplant in the whole world? <coughs> Christian Barnard, you may never have heard of him, South African surgeon, okay? Now, if I had needed a heart transplant way back then, back there, who are you gonna call? It's not Ghostbusters. <laughs> The only person I could have called to do the job of a heart transplant, otherwise I croak, is Christian Barnard. Well, as it happens in regard to the matter of salvation, there's only one great physician. There's only one doctor in the house. 
There's only one who got the job done and can get the job done. It's the God-man, Jesus. He was singular. Listen to what Matthew 11 says. Jesus explains it himself this way. All things have been committed to me by my Father. Listen to what he says. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal the Father. Who is the only sufficient revelator of the character of God? Survey says, Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you see the spitting image of the Father. When you listen to Jesus, you come to know who Abba is. What this text says is that Christ is the unique mediator of a saving relationship, a personal relationship with the Father. Let's look at another text. Another good memory verse. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5. This is the way it's put in the Pauline literature. It says, this is good and pleases God our Savior. Notice the word Savior. It's an issue of salvation, this unique thing. This is good and pleasing to God our Savior who wants how many people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? You notice it doesn't say the elect. Hello. Wakey, wakey. God wants all persons to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What did John 3.16 say? God so loved the world. Right? God wants all persons to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and human beings, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for how many? All persons. Hello? How many people did Jesus die for on the cross? Everybody. Let me just tell you what everybody means. It means every pea pick and soul that ever existed. It means everybody. The one person that Jesus did not die for on the cross was Jesus. Did you ever think about that? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world did not need to die for himself. He died for everybody else, all the children of Adam. Now that summary in 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5 makes several key points. Firstly, that text reminds us that there is only one God, not a bunch, and there's only one Savior. Sorry, Oprah had it wrong. It's not unlike the situation where there is just Christian Barnard. Jesus is the great physician, the only one who can provide salvation. Now notice what else the text says. It says he is the one and only mediator between God and human beings. Why? Because he's the only God-man, the only one who can truly represent from the inside out God to us and us to God. There were other great world prophets, other great teachers, 
Moses would be a good example. You know what? The thing about them, if they were not deranged, <coughs> is none of them claimed to be God. None of them claimed to be divine. C.S. Lewis put it this way. No person talks like Jesus talked unless there are one of three things that are true about him. He's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord, the three L's. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. None of this patronizing nonsense about, oh, Jesus was a fabulous teacher, just fabulous, marvelous. I love those parables, they're cute. Nice little Sunday school stories. Have you ever actually read the parables? They're more like fractured fairy tales than Sunday school stories. They're about the explosion of the kingdom of God into this world and how it changes and transforms all human values and saves human beings. Listen to this one. You may not have known this. Jesus is the only historical figure who meets the requirements for being a savior and a mediator between God and human beings. Here's something interesting. There were only two historical persons from the second century BC to the second century AD who were ever worshiped. One is Jesus, the other was the emperor, as in Augustus or Nero, who was a zero, not a hero, okay? Only Jesus lived a life without sin. So only he could provide a perfect atonement for sin, a perfect sacrifice for all human beings. And here's the nub of the problem. As Paul puts it, all human beings have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is, we've fallen and we can't get up with any humanly devised self-help program. I don't care if it's a five-step program, seven-step program, you are so not getting out of the swamp of sin by human self-help programs. And when a minister turns the gospel into a human self-help program instead of a radical rescue by a gracious God, he is not offering a version of the gospel, he is offering a perversion of the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith. That's it. We are not saving ourselves. That's why we needed a savior. Now, Jesus not only did not sin, he on the positive side manifested the glorious presence of God in person while on earth. He's the only one who was both divine and perfectly human and could offer the perfect sacrifice for sins. Now here comes the deep question. Here's where we really get deep dish. Why was the death of Jesus necessary for our salvation? Let me put it to you the negative way. If Jesus' death was not the absolutely necessary and sufficient means of our being saved, then God the Father is in no sense a loving God because what father 
would put his son through that if it was not absolutely necessary for the salvation of the world. That would have been child abuse on the cross unless it was the one perfect revelation of God's salvation and righteousness all at once. Why was the death necessary? Because God cannot take a pass on sin forever. When I was in InterVarsity at Carolina, yes, I'm a Tar Heel. When I was at InterVarsity at Carolina, go Tar Heels, um, there was a young girl who had not had theology one of one and she got up to give her testimony. She said, the way I see it, it all works out great. I like committing sins. God likes forgiving sins. Woohoo! Is that the way it is? Do you think it's easy for God to forgive sin? If you think it's easy for God to forgive sin, a holy God, have you looked at the cross lately? Have you thought of the cost that God paid for our redemption in the person of his son? It is because God is immutably, eternally, both holy and loving both just and merciful, both righteous and compassionate, that the cross was a necessity if we were to be saved. In God there is light and there is no darkness at all. God does not pass on justice or holiness in order to offer mercy and compassion. This also is bad preaching. Remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? What does Jesus finally say to the woman caught in adultery? Does he say, there, there, you're forgiven. It's okay. We've got plenty of forgiveness up here in heaven. No. What does Jesus say? He says, neither do I condemn you, but what? Go and sin no more. If you don't think God takes sin as serious as a heart attack, look at the cross. It was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. <coughs> think about that one for a minute. Notice as well in the first Timothy 2 text that we cited that God desires us all to be saved. Now, about this point in the lecture, I always get somebody to raise their hand and say, well, okay, what about the people that have never heard the gospel? What about the heathen in, I don't know, Easter Island who don't have the internet, okay? What about those who have never heard the gospel? Are they condemned for not having heard? You may be surprised at the answer. The answer is no. They are not condemned for not having heard the gospel. Any more than those who lived before Jesus' time are condemned for not having heard the gospel. Here's what Romans 1 says about that. It says, all human beings have received the general revelation of God in creation. How many? All human beings. What Paul says is the reality and power of God is 
evident in all of creation, in every country, in every farm, village, Middlesex, county, or state. Everywhere God has revealed himself in his creation. The reality of God and indeed the power of God is evident in all of creation, says Paul. The problem is not that they haven't heard the gospel. The problem is what they have done with what they do know about God. Here's how Paul puts it. He says that though they knew God, they exchanged the truth about God for what? For a lie. Now you can't exchange X for Y unless you have X. There is no person ever born who is entirely ignorant of the real God. Paul says the problem is not knowledge, but acknowledging. They know there is a God, but they are not acknowledging Him. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They have exchanged true religion, not for no religion, but for idolatry. We are living in a country full of idolaters. They're not secular people. They're idolaters. The truth may well have dawned on them in small measure, but they don't like it. They have exchanged the truth for a lie. The reason for missions and evangelism, the reason it's crucial, is because the world is truly chosen darkness over light. John 1 says it. The light shone in the darkness and the cockroaches in the basement preferred the darkness to the light. Oh, they knew all about the light. They knew to run when the light showed up. It's not about being completely ignorant of the truth about God. It's about refusing to acknowledge the true God. So what I would say about a person who has not heard the gospel is that each person will be judged or according to the light they have received and according to what they have done with that light. You get the point? They are judged according to the light they have received, to whom more is given, more is required. You've heard that biblical phrase. And they're judged on the basis of what they have done with the light they have received. Have they acknowledged it? Have they affirmed it? Have they positively accepted it? Have they begged God for more? Or have they turned? All have sinned, said Paul, and fallen short of the glory of God. Another way to translate that, which is perfectly good in the Greek, would be all have sinned and lack the glory of God. What happened to Adam and Eve in the garden? You remember this? What happened when they ate that golden delicious apple from Seattle? What happened? 
I heard you romping through the garden and I was ashamed because I was naked and I was afraid and I hid. You know what this is a story of? The beginning, not just of self-consciousness, but self-centeredness, narcissism. The primal sin is not pride, it's narcissism. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, America is one of the top five narcissistic countries in all of human history. It's all about me, myself, and I. It's all about me. It's the heart, as Pascal said, turned in upon itself. If narcissism is the most primal of sin, then what is salvation? If anyone would come after me, says Jesus, they must do what? Deny whom? Themselves. Hello. Take up their cross and follow me. You notice Jesus doesn't say they must deny themselves something. Okay, it's Lent. I'm giving up candy for Lent. This is not what Jesus was talking about. He said you must do what? You must deny yourself, <laughs> your fallen, self-centered, selfish, narcissistic self. Jesus did not come so that we could be more self-centered. Jesus did not come so that we could focus more on our individual success in life. Jesus did not come for us to preach a health and wealth gospel. Jesus didn't come for that. He didn't live that. He didn't demand that. But that sure is a gospel that'll preach in America. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves. They must cease being of Adam's race and begin being conformed to the image of the Son. Begin to be conformed to the image of the Son of Man. Here's the thing about salvation. It's the beginning of your true humanity. It's the first day of the rest of your life. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creature. Behold, the old has already passed away. The new has come. Do you believe that? Do you believe God has enough unction to function and enough grace to change you from being a self-centered, selfish, narcissistic person to being a selfless, other-directed, other-loving being. I hope you do because what's the great commandment? What does God really want from us? Tithe. No. <laughs> He don't want 10%. 
I mean, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. It all belongs to God anyway. And enough of that 10% nonsense. He says, I want you to present yourself as a living sacrifice to me. The problem with living sacrifices is they can crawl off the altar. <laughs> Have you ever noticed? I gave my heart to Jesus. I mean, it was my kidneys that didn't want to go. I have a friend that uh, used to teach at Asbury. He grew up in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. He, his parents were always taking him to revivals over and over and over again. He said, I went to the altar in revivals meetings so many times I had stretch marks on my soul. <laughs> I was born again and again and did I mention again and again and again. <laughs> yeah. The great commandment is what? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and soul and mind and strength. And what else? And your neighbor as yourself. You can only do that if you cease being a narcissist. You can only do that if you've been saved. You can only do that by a radical act of the grace of God in your life so that the Son of Man, His image appears in the sons and daughters of humanity, in you. So that when people look at you, they see Jesus. When people look at you, they see the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my good friends, a Methodist from London, was named Dr. Reginald Mallet. He told the story about the discovery of a cure for a previously fatal disease in a lab in London. Now, the scientist who owned this lab was a big dog. He was famous. He was on the BBC a lot. And, you know, he was a pretty proud person. So when the news got word of this new panacea, new miraculous cure, they went and interviewed this man. And they said, well, how'd you do it, you know? He said, oh, it was just a lot of hard work. Got some help from my employees in the lab. It was a lot of hard work. And, you know, they were going to name this drug after him. And, you know, that just didn't smell right to one of these really nosy London Times reporters. So the next day he went to the lab. He started asking the question, who really discovered this cure? It wasn't this guy, was it? No, he hardly ever shows up at the lab. It's just his name on the lab. Who really discovered it? They pointed him to a really old guy at the back, bald guy in his 60s. The reporter went up to him and said, doesn't it irk you that you discovered the cure for this disease and yet he's getting all the credit? And the man said, it doesn't matter who gets the credit. What matters is who gets the cure. That, friends, is not narcissism. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. We live in a culture that thinks it's entitled to everything. It thinks it has by right a right 
to everything, to chickens in every pot, to cars in every garage, a great job, a pension, and a regular vacation in paradise. I got news for you. None of that is owed to any of us. It's all grace. It's not owed to us. When we finally give up our little old narcissistic selves and begin to love God with our whole heart and neighbor as self, we begin to understand why it was necessary for somebody other than ourselves to save us. A drowning man cannot rescue himself from the turbulent waters. He has to be rescued by a savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And all God's people said, Amen. go in peace, serve the Lord. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.